0: But in the midst of sadness, we see God's goodness starting to come through. Reading from the New International Version, the 2011 uh, edition, Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons, with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Marlon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to return back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realised that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. While they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Thank you, Carl. Uh, just by the way,
1: it's the 29th of October that the Desert Night is. Just in case anyone's confused, it's not September. Uh, just so I should point that out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, speak to us uh, now in your word uh, and through my words. Lord, open up uh, your intent and your purpose in the life of Ruth. uh, Reveal to us what it is that you want to teach us uh, and change us, Lord, how you want to change us by these words. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, what on earth could a book about a woman falling in love and getting married uh, over 3,000 years ago have to say to us today? Uh, Ruth, kind of, if you read through it, feels a little bit like uh, Jane Austen for the Old Testament. I um, don't know, I still, might, still quite like Jane Austen. But, um, but even though that's what it seems like, Ruth has, I think, a lot to say to us today. It's not just a love story about this woman, uh, you know, who, who loses her husband and then finds another one. Uh, there are there are two books uh, in the Old Testament named after women, Ruth and the book of Esther. And I think they're just fantastic books. They're some of my favourite books in the whole uh, of the Bible. And Ruth and Esther share not only the fact that they're named after women, but also the fact uh, in, in how God is pro- portrayed in those books. Esther is famous in the Old Testament for being the book where God's name is never mentioned. God's name never comes up once in the whole uh, book of Esther. And Ruth is similar in uh, in that, although God is mentioned uh, a number of times, his name is mentioned, uh, God is only ever mentioned once in this first chapter as intervening in the affairs of this book. Like with Esther, God's work in the book of Ruth is in the background Uh, God's work is everywhere, it's on every page, and yet it's not specifically mentioned. You see, what the book of Ruth does, I think, is to show us how God is at work in the ordinary events of our lives. Uh, So often we look for what God is doing in the spectacular and the miraculous uh, and the the out-of-the-ordinary But Ruth shows us how God is at work in bad decisions and in good decisions, in simple generosity, in acts of human kindness, in bitterness, in death, uh, and in marriage. Through the ordinary and often slightly boring actions of life, God is doing all extraordinary things. He's saving people who don't know him. He's restoring people who've wandered away. He's raising up a saviour. And ultimately, in this book, he was even working towards the coming of Jesus who would save uh, all those uh, who trust in him from their sins. Uh, So often we think that our ordinary lives are irrelevant, but I think the book of Ruth teaches us that God is at work in our ordinary lives and God is at work, perhaps above and beyond what we would ever imagine. Well, the book of Ruth begins with a catastrophe. As Steve said, it's a pretty sad kind of chapter in many ways. In verse 1, it begins already, in, we're told, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. There's a famine in the land of God's people. Uh, and from that one catastrophe, a series of smaller catastrophes unfold for this one particular family. Uh, the famine in the land of Israel leads one man, Elimelech, and his wife Naomi to go to Moab. They take their two sons uh, and in the land of, the, of Moab, the two sons, Mahlon and Kilion, get married to Moabite women. One marries Orpah and the other marries Ruth, who becomes the central character uh, of this book. But tragedy soon strikes after they've arrived. Elimelech, the husband, dies, and Marlon and Kilion die as well, and Naomi, the wife, finds herself stranded in this country without a husband, without any sons uh, who can provide for her, with her two she's there with these two daughter in laws, and without a means of supporting and providing either for herself or for these two women. Uh, at first This might all just kind of seem like misfortune. Wow, it's unlucky, isn't it? There was a famine, they went to Moab, and they were unlucky there as well. But buried in the details of this story, I think, are clues that something deeper is at work here. As so often in reading the Old Testament, it really helps to know a little bit about the kind of background, the setting in history, in the, in the history of what God is doing in the Old Testament. It helps to know that, where this reading fits in. Uh, the opening verse of Ruth helps us to kind of orient ourselves to when this is happening. These events take place, we're told, in the days when the judges ruled, uh, those events, the, days, the, the events of the days of the Judges are recorded in the Old Testament book of Judges. Uh, and what's important about what happens in the days of the Judges and in the book of Judges is that in Judges there is this continual cycle of disobedience and obedience. Uh, there's this continual cycle of disobedience followed by God's rebuke. So in Judges chapter 2, you get this summary of the pattern that just kind of goes on and on and on in the book of Judges. What happens is this, the people do evil in the eyes of God, they turn their back on God and so God turns his back on them. He gives them over to their enemies and God's people become miserable and destitute. They cry out to God for help and God raises up for them a rescuer, a judge, that judge delivers the people and the people return to God while the judge is alive. They live for God. While the judge is there, they live for God. But then when the judge dies, the people return to their evil ways. They, they go back and turn their back on God again. And often we're told they go back and they're worse than they were before. So over and over again, the people turn their back on God. God hands them over. They cry out to God. He rescues them. The judge dies and they go back to their evil ways. So as we begin the book of Ruth, we're being told that all the events in this book are during those cycles of obedience and disobedience, those cycles of disobedience and distress. That gives us a clue, I think, to the cause of this famine in Israel, The implication is that this famine is part of one of those cycles of uh, where the people had turned away from God and this famine is the result uh, of the people's disobedience. That background in Judges then also helps us to think about the response that the people ought to have made in that situation. How should they have responded to the famine? Well, the response that they ought to have made is the response uh, that they kept making in Judges, that is to repent, to cry out to God, uh, and to wait for him to to raise up another judge another another deliverer. Uh, Already in the book of Leviticus, God had said that if the people would turn away from him, he would bring distress on them, and one of the ways that he would do that was through famine. Uh, And there too, the remedy of that situation was for the people to confess their sins, to humble themselves before God, uh, and to trust him. Well, rather than repenting uh, with God's people and waiting for God to raise up another judge, uh, this man Elimelech and his wife Naomi leave Israel and go to Moab. And in leaving Israel, they're not just leaving a land, a place, they're leaving the place where God had said that he would look after his people and provide for his people. Now, the place where they're going is Moab, Moab. Uh, And again, it helps to know a little bit about Moab. Uh, The people of Moab were descended from Lot, Abraham's nephew. In Genesis, we're told uh, how the nation of Moab arose. It comes from a fairly ignominious background. Moab was the son which Lot's daughter bore uh, after she got her dad drunk and slept with him. Uh, It's a a shameful background. Uh, And yet the Bible tells us God still cared for the Moabites. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 2, God says that his people shouldn't harass Moab. Uh, they wanted to. They didn't think they were. They, the, the Israelites didn't like the Moabites, but God said, don't harass them. Uh, and in fact, God had given them a place to live just like he'd given Israel a place to live. God cared about them. And yet... In Deuteronomy 23, God says to the people, no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. That is, the Moabites and the Ammonites couldn't become officially part of the assembly of God's people. The reason that Deuteronomy 23 gives, that God gives, is not because of their background, but because the people of Moab hadn't come to the aid of Israel uh, when they needed help. And worse, the people of Moab had deliberately tried to curse God's people. And so too, through the book of Judges, we find Moab again and again oppressing God's people in various ways. Uh, It was also the case that the Moabites didn't know or follow God. So in Numbers 25, there's this account of how God's people were sleeping around with the Moabites. Uh, And the consequence of that was that the people were abandoning God. Uh, and so in Deuteronomy 23, God says that his people were supposed to stay somewhat separate from the Moabites, not because God hated them, but God, God cared for them deeply. But rather, God wanted his people to remain committed to him and not to be led astray by people who didn't know and love him. Uh, and And... what they certainly weren't supposed to do was to marry the Moabites lest they end up abandoning God altogether. And yet that's exactly what happens here in Ruth chapter 1. Elimelech and Naomi go with their sons to Moab, they settle down uh, there, they build their house uh, and Marlon and Kilion marry these Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And so as we begin the book of Ruth, we find Sin in Israel leading to distress in the form of a famine, which leads this family then to take matters into their own hands and to do other things which God has called them not to do. This family leaves the place where God has told his people he would look after them and be with them. And this family goes and sets up their home living among people who didn't know God and didn't love God. And their sons marry women who who aren't committed to following God. In other words, the way that they deal with the acute problems of their life is by compromising their relationship with God. In fact, the way that they deal with the sin which has led to the famine is by compounding sin. They depart from the land where God has told them he'll be with them and they find these wives among people who don't love God. And I think in the same way that we can deal with the situations of our lives in in a very similar way. Instead of doing what we ought to do and to cry out to God and confess our sins and trust in his mercy in the death, death of Jesus, what we do is we wander further away from God. We find ourselves in distress, whether because of our sin or for another reason. And instead of drawing closer to God, we move further away. We often do that in a misguided attempt, I think, to solve the consequences of our own sin through our own means. It seems remarkable, I think, and yet so often it's true that we deal with our sin not by acknowledging it to God, but by throwing ourselves further into it, by getting further entangled, uh, not less so. And yet, how we respond to to our sin reveals an awful lot, I think, about where we stand with God. John Ensaw, in his book, The Great Work of the Gospel, notes that while sheep stumble, pigs wallow. Sheep stumble, pigs wallow. That is, while sheep might fall into the mud and get covered in muck and all kinds of rubbish, they don't stay there, they get up and they move on. Pigs, on the other hand, love to live in the mud. They're in the mud and they don't want to leave it. And what John Ensor is saying is, uh, well, he writes this, what we are may be difficult to discern when we're covered in mud. That is, we can't see whether we're sheep or, or pigs, but our reaction to it over a period of time will tell us if we are part of God's flock or the devil's herd. That is, if our response to sin is to keep throwing ourselves into it, to keep living in it, to keep moving further away from God, then it reveals to us that we don't actually really know God at all. But if our response to sin is to keep going back to God, to keep picking ourselves up out of the mud and going back to Jesus, going back to the cross, then it shows that we've grasped the gospel. We've grasped the good news that Jesus died to rescue us from sin. So how can we live in it any longer? You see, the solution to sin and misery is not to keep going further from God, uh, as Naomi and her family did, but to go back to him. The best place that we can ever go is back to God, uh, and yet often it's the last place that people go. Uh, And while there's no physical land for us to leave, we can, uh, like these people did, uh, we can still wander away from God. Uh, We can still wander away from the church, from God's people, from God's means of grace, uh, in an effort to deal with life's difficulties. And then moving away from God, we join ourselves with people who don't know God. Uh, One especially ruinous way that people do that, as in this chapter, is by pursuing relationships that God says to avoid. Uh, Time and again, the Bible warns, against pursuing marriage or deep relationships with people who don't follow God, who don't know Jesus. Paul in the New Testament says that Christians should marry in the Lord. Uh, That is, they should marry other Christians. Why is that? Because otherwise it ends up dragging us away from God. Being intimately connected with someone who has no interest in loving God and serving God often has a damaging effect on our own relationship. No, the remedy to the difficulties in our lives and the sin in our lives is not to move further away from God but to draw closer to God and to draw closer to Jesus Christ. Well, it's unsurprising then, I think, that as Naomi and her family wandered further away from God, their lives became more and more difficult But God's purpose, we need to understand, in bringing distress on Naomi and her family, was not to destroy them, was not to break them. God's purpose was to do them good and to do good to others. His purpose was to humble them, to bring them to their senses, and to bring others to their senses as well. And we find the first glimpse of that, I think, in what follows in the rest of the chapter, so as Ruth begins we find Naomi and her two daughters-in-law destitute in the land of Moab but then all of a sudden news comes that God is doing something good back in Israel we're told in verse 6 when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there God's Uh, come to the rescue he's come to the aid of the people back in Israel as he had always done in the period of the judges and so they decide to go back and yet as the three of these three women are heading back to the land of Israel Naomi decides that maybe it's best for Ruth and Orpah to go back off uh, to go off back home to to Moab so in verse 8 she says Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Uh, Naomi's chief concern in all this seems to be that Ruth and Orpah find themselves new husbands. Uh, That's because both women are Moabites and no one in Israel is likely to marry them on account of God's uh, commandment preventing that. So she says, go back to Moab. That's the only place you'll find uh, new husbands. Well, at first, uh, Ruth and Orpah are unconvinced. They remain committed to going with Naomi. But eventually, Orpah uh, decides to go back. But Ruth is harder to shake. She's, she's there. She's clinging onto Ruth. Uh, uh, sorry, onto Naomi. Uh, and, and Naomi eventually says to Ruth in verse 15, look, your sister-in-law is going back To her people and her gods, go back with her. Now, Naomi encourages Ruth here even to go back to her fake gods in Moab. Don't come back with me. You know, what does it matter? Go back to your own gods, your own people. But it's at that point, actually, that Ruth says one of the most remarkable things almost in the entire Bible. She says in verse 16, Don't hurt me to leave you or, or to turn back from you. Wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. There's no doubt that part of what Ruth is saying here is bound up with her commitment to Naomi. She says, I'm going with you no matter what happens. But I think it's also clear that something else is going on here as well, that it's not just about Naomi, it's about God. Ruth commits uh, to Naomi's people, the people of God, and Ruth commits to Naomi's God, the one true God. Your God will be my God. That's even more remarkable, I think, given what Naomi's just said. Go back to your own gods, what does it matter? And Ruth says, no, I'm going with you and I'm going with your God. And she swears an oath using the personal name of God. She knows this God. May the Lord, may the Lord Yahweh, the personal name of God, deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Ruth doesn't care about husbands or remarrying. She cares about Naomi and she cares about the one true God. It turns out that through all this misery, God was doing something remarkable. God is reaching out to save a woman who many thought was beyond God's care and compassion. She was a Moabite. She was excluded from the assembly of God. And yet, remarkably, God is using the brokenness of this family, the brokenness of his people Israel, to draw this woman to himself. Through the bitterness and brokenness of Naomi and through the bitterness and disobedience of her family in Israel, God was saving this Moabite woman. As one of my Bible college lecturers used to say, God can use a crooked stick to make a straight blow. That is, God can bring good out of evil. He can bring salvation even out of sin. Which is not an excuse to just Be indifferent to sin, it's not an excuse to throw ourselves into it, to be complacent about it, but it's an encouragement that God's faithfulness is greater than our unfaithfulness. That God can use us, even in our worst moments, to do us good and to do good to others as well. I had the privilege uh, once to hear from a non-Christian friend of mine how he'd worked to build a good relationship with his ex-wife. They'd separated uh, and for the sake of uh, their child he'd really worked hard uh, and he was able to, say, able to share how, uh, how they really had been able to move on with a good relationship. Uh, and it was, just, it was just actually really wonderful <laughs> I think to be trusted like that to have a conversation with someone uh, about their life. But afterwards I thought to myself, I wish I'd said something more thoughtful. (laughs) You know, I wish I'd been able to say something about God or something like that. But what would I have said? Well, afterwards I thought, mate, well, I think I should have said something like this. Bob, his name's not Bob. Bob, what you've been through is so difficult. But it it just reminds me of how God is able to bring great good out of great evil. You know, that in the, that's every time I think of the cross of Jesus, the death of Jesus, I, I'm reminded that God is so powerful that he can bring amazing good to an entire world out of the worst sin in all of human history. You know, that's, what I wanted to say to him was, that's the God that I know. Your, exp, your experience of life, that good can come out of evil is just a reflection of the God who made this world and the God who redeems this world. That's the God I want you to know, Bob. (laughs) The God who can bring good, great good out of great evil. In the same way, I think the book of Ruth is about God doing exactly that. That's the big picture. God, in the ordinary things of people's lives, God is bringing great good out of great evil. It's about good and ama- the good and amazing stuff that God is doing when the life of every single person seems to be falling apart. Well, out of the errors uh, of Naomi and her husbands and her sons, God has rescued Ruth. Uh, and Ruth, we find, displays this incredible trust and allegiance to God. Your God will be my God. But despite that good, despite that amazing picture of, of this of this. Moabite woman coming to know the the one true God despite that there's at least one person in this chapter who just doesn't seem to be seeing the good things that God is doing uh, and that's Naomi. At the end of this chapter rather than being lifted up rather than going away and going woo yeah Ruth she's she's come to know God. We get to the end of the chapter and we go wow that's just really awful. Uh, Naomi comes back to Israel and she's bitter she is so incredibly bitter. Uh, she she returns to her hometown and the people see her and they go, wow, is this Naomi? Can it really be her? She's still alive. She's come back. Isn't that amazing? And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. That means bitter. What she's saying is, she's saying, don't call me pleasant because my life hasn't been pleasant. My life has been bitter. Call me bitter. What a great name. It's, uh, I think, uh, you know, Maybe that's what you should call me from now on. Bitter, Carl. It's not Carl, Bitter. Carl means strong and manly, so that's not a good name. But <laughs> Bitter, don't call me Bitter. Call me hilarious, that's a great name. But she's so, she's so upset about her life that she says, I don't want to be known by that name anymore. I want a new name. And my name is Bitter. And notice that she blames God for it entirely. Uh, she says, I went, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. God has done it. God's afflicted me. God's done this. This isn't my fault. It's God's fault. The bitterness of her circumstances has ended up kind of manifesting itself in bitterness towards God. She's so bitter, as we saw earlier, that she says to Ruth, don't come back with me. What's the point? Go back to your own God's. How easy it is, I think, for the bitterness of our circumstances to turn into that same condition, to to turn into bitterness towards God. God has done this to me. God hates me. God has rejected me. How easy it is for us, when the bitterness of our own circumstances, when it's the result of our own foolishness even, to to turn that into bitterness towards God. We wander from God and then we wonder at at the misery of our life And then we have the nerve to to blame God for it. You did this to me, God. It's your fault, not my fault. Naomi seems completely unwilling to take responsibility for her actions. To say, you know what, actually, maybe I shouldn't have gone. I shouldn't have gone with the family to Moab. Maybe that was a mistake. Maybe it was wrong to move further away from God. And yet... And yet I think even in the bitterness of Naomi, there is a glimmer of hope. Because you see, at least she has come back. She's not in Moab anymore. She saw that God was doing something good in Israel and she went back there. She's come back to the place where God has promised to be with his people. Despite the bitterness that there is in Naomi's heart, her actions display an element, I think, of Repentance, of coming back to God. Scattered throughout this whole chapter is that language, the language of returning, uh, which is the kind of language which is used throughout the whole Bible to speak about repentance. The prophets use that, returning, of turning back to God, of repenting. Naomi's geographical return represents a kind of a spiritual return to God and to God's people and to the place where God had promised to look after his people. Is it genuine repentance? Repentance. I don't know. Some days I think, oh, yeah, maybe it is. And some days I think, oh, I don't know, she's pretty bitter. That's not a good place to be, is it? But maybe, actually, we don't need to know the answer to that. Maybe that's not the point. You see, because at the very least, what we can say is this, that true repentance or not, at least it's a step in the right direction. And it's definitely true, as the rest of this book shows, that it's better for Naomi to be bitter and near God than it is for her to be bitter and far away. It's better for Naomi to be bitter and near to God than it is to be bitter and far away. Because despite Naomi's bitterness, God shows himself in this book to be unbelievably kind. The book of Ruth is not only about God's kindness to Ruth, this, this Moabite woman, the book of Ruth is also about God's kindness to Naomi. It's about God reversing Naomi's misery. It's about God being kind to this bitter woman who can only accuse God of evil. It's about being God, God being kind and generous to a woman like that. You see, you and I might be deeply embittered towards God. Uh, You might feel that God is really against you. Uh, And maybe that's not your fault. You might be like Job. You've not done anything wrong and, and yet calamity has come upon you. And you're thinking to yourself, what's going on? Why is God doing this to me? Or maybe it is your fault. Maybe misery has come on you because you've made some stupid decisions. You've moved away from God. You've turned away from God. You've turned your back on him and on his ways. Well, whatever the situation, whatever has brought this bitterness upon you, don't deal with bitterness by running from God. Deal with bitterness by coming back to God, by coming to, to the place where God has said that he'll be with his people, that is, in Jesus Christ. There's no better place for us to be, bitterness and all, than in the hands of God. And there's no safer place uh, for us to be than in the loving hands of Jesus, even with our bitterness. Uh, If you're consumed by bitterness, then put yourself in God's hands and ask him to melt that bitterness away by opening your eyes to see the wonder of his love opening your eyes to see how, how wide and high and long and deep is the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Ask that he'd help you to know his love in Jesus, to see Jesus hanging on a cross, bringing great good out of great evil for everyone who trusts in him. You see, it's so easy, I think, for us to get fixated on our own misery and our own sorrow and our own difficulties, and to fail to see what God is capable of doing. That is, to bring great evil, great good, sorry, out of great evil. Uh, is Ruth just a love story? I think it is, actually. But it's not a love story about Ruth. <laughs> it's actually a love story about God. It's about God's love, which conquers the disobedience and the sinfulness of the people that He's made. It's about God's love, which persists all the way into the foreign land where God has said that He won't be. It's about the love of God, which persists with people who've run away from Him and tried to, to work things out for themselves. It's about God's love, who, who, who welcomes the foreigner, the stranger, into His loving embrace. It's about the love of God which persists with a woman who comes back so incredibly bitter that she has not a good word to say about God. Is Ruth a love story? Yes, it's a love story. But it's not about Ruth, it's about God's love. God's love for people who've never known him. God's love for people who've become so embittered by life. Ruth is a history of God's love for sinners. It's a story about God's love which finds its fulfilment on a tree outside Jerusalem. It's a love story which finds God's own son hanging on a cross. Not in vengeance, but pleading that you and I return to him and cling to him like Ruth. People like Ruth who say, your God will be my God, and your people my people. People who say, like Ruth, I trust in you, God. And wherever you go, I will go. Amen. Let's pray. Dear and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible love. Which wanders with us, even into faraway places. They can reach down into the very depths of hell and pluck us out through the death of Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to confess that each of us, of ourselves, have left the place where you have called us to be, near to you, knowing you, living for you, loving you. We've wandered far away. But, Lord, you have sought us from there, You've sent your own son to call us back. And Lord, some of us have come back and we rejoice. We rejoice. We've come back not bitter, but full of joy at your amazing love and grace to us. And Or there may be some among us here still who, who are still wandering in far off places. Lord, work in their hearts. Call them back. Draw them to yourself. And Lord, for those who are bound up in bitterness and distress and disappointment about life, for those who are shaking their fist at you and saying, why have you done this to me? Why have you brought this calamity upon me? You did this. Lord, for those people we ask that you would soften their bitterness and help them to see in the cross that you are a God who can bring the greatest good out of even the greatest evil. Lord, strengthen us and encourage us, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.